Yeah, there's, there's no coincidences with God. I think that, uh, I think as you, this sounds kind of arrogant, but I think as you spiritually mature, as you develop spiritual eyes, you begin to see more and more of what God's doing. You become more aware of it. I think he's, I think he's doing it in everybody's lives. I just think some people become more aware of it as they journey through, uh, doesn't make them better or anything like that. It just becomes apparent. Uh, so you see when somebody sits at your table or uh, I think of my friends right here, the Nicholas family who, whose mother went home to be with the Lord last night. Uh, for the last six weeks, she's moved in with them and done hospice at their house. And we've been praying that the Lord would take her home, and He did last night. But just as the family had all gathered and were in the room together, and Mike basically prayed, uh, Jesus, into your hands. We give our mother, and she opened her eyes and took her last breath at that very moment. It was not a coincidence. It's just God at work, and uh, she's home. She's home, Mike. She's um, she's healed, and it's all good. Uh, I I have that heart now for those that lose their mom, so it's it's a little different. Um, so and pray for. Shannon Langmack too. Shannon lost her dad this last week. She down in Alabama. Her and Micah, um, they buried him on Friday. So just continue to pray for them as they travel home in the snow and stuff like that. So coincidences. We talked about it last week. Um, <laughs> Rob Bell's mom lives in. Uh, Virginia, I, I, I say a different state every time, and I probably get it wrong, but she, she messages me every Sunday morning, probably around 5 a.m., letting me know that she's praying for me, and uh, she's, she's a Redskins fan, so she harasses me about the Cowboys, and I said, it's all good. You know, they lost last night, but today's Resurrection Day. And she goes, oh, good, Jesus is going to get off the cross today. I'm like, no, it's Sunday is Resurrection Day. Jesus is still on the cross. She's like, good Lord, get him off the cross already. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I don't think I'm make it to Easter to get him off the cross, but uh, I'm not going to get him off the cross today. I still want to stay in Matthew chapter 27 verse 51. If you're a guest with us today, we've been taking the last year and a half working our way through the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, putting them in chronological order, making them work together. And last week we talked about the actual temple, Solomon's temple that was, was being basically refurbished by King Herod during Jesus' time, the whole time that Jesus walked here on earth that temple was being refurbished. So he watched it as a child be one thing, and it totally changed by the time of his death, kind of like downtown Fishers. It's just changing. It's just changing his whole life. And so 
but we talked about the, the, the temple, and one of the things that we talked about was the menorah. I had an actual menorah up here, uh, but I'll show you a, a picture of the one that is actually in Jerusalem right now that is not in the temple mount because they're, uh, the temple mount is owned by the, the Muslims, but this is in a museum where they've built the artifacts that will eventually go back into the temple once the temple is rebuilt, and it will be rebuilt eventually on that same temple mount. But we talked about this menorah and how that very center, very center light is the westernmost light. It is the Ner Elohim light. It is the lamp of God light. It represented Jesus. And last week we talked about, we read from the Talmud, the Talmud being Jewish writings, and get this, the Jews didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Even though Jesus was a Jew, Jesus was a Jew, they didn't believe He was the Messiah, the one that was going to come save them. So they have all these writings and understandings and beliefs based upon Jesus not being the man, which is in total contrast of what we get here. We believe that Jesus is the man. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's my Savior. He's my Messiah. All right, so, so we now have this, this Talmud that they've written. The Mishnah was written probably around 220 A.D., and it was all the oral laws that the Pharisees had come up with. And then about 600 A.D., the Jews got together and they put all the stories and traditions together of the, the Mishnah and the Jewish traditions, and they call it the Talmud. And we read out of the Talmud, Jewish understanding and traditions, that 40 years before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., that center light went out and was never relit again. The light that represented Jesus went out. Coincidence? It's not, we're not reading the Bible here, we're reading Jewish tradition. They have nothing to do with Jesus. They didn't believe that Jesus was the center light. They just believed that it was the light of the world that was to come. There was still a Messiah that was to come, and it wasn't Jesus. But ironically, coincidentally, that light went out the same year that Jesus was crucified on the cross in 30 A.D. Hmm. Kind of strange. Well, let's take it a, a little bit further today and see if we have any more coincidences. I'll read to you from the Talmud that I read last week. During the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the lot for the Lord did not come up in the right hand, nor did the crimson-colored strap become white. I'll explain that here in just a second. Nor did the westernmost light shine. Someone uh, emailed me this week and said, I love when you... Uh, teach the New Testament and you bring the Old Testament into it and kind of work them together. I, look, I'm an Old Testament, New Testament guy. I believe the Old Testament, watch, watch this, this is very important. There's the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. Then you've got a 400-year period of silence, 
Alexander the Great, the Persians, all that, that, that occurred. And then you've got the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation. But watch this. I'm going to use a different term. I'm going to say Old Covenant and New Covenant. That is not Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Covenant was a covenant that God had made with Abraham and the Jews. He said, you're my people. He gave them the law. He gave them circumcision. He gave them all these different things to say, you're my people and I've made this covenant with you. Here's the law. You obey the law. If you obey the law, I bless you. If you break the law, if you disobey, if you sin, then you're probably not going to be blessed and you probably may be even cursed depending on how long you continue in your disobedience. This was the whole Old Testament. They were good, punished, repented, re replenished, repeat, wash, rinse, repeat. I'm telling you, it's the way it went throughout the whole Old Testament. Now you get to the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant happened all the way up to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the end of those books when Jesus died and He ushered in a new covenant. When Jesus died on the cross, that's when the new covenant began. You can get real picky about when that actually came through, when His blood was shed or when He was off the cross or when He went back to heaven. Look, Jesus ushered in the new covenant. You are living in the new covenant. You weren't given the old covenant. That was for the Jews. You weren't given the law. That was for the Jews. Some of you are sitting there like, what? We don't have to obey the law? Paul says the law is good and the law is holy. The law is a tutor that shows us that we need a Savior. God used the law to say, hey, look, this doesn't match up with what I like. This is the way you live your life. And so when we see that, we realize, oh, we've blown it, we've sinned, we've disobeyed God, and we realize that we need a Savior. The new covenant life allows us to walk this earth to walk this earth with another source living inside of us. Romans 8.11 The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit that lives in our mortal bodies. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit that lives in our mortal bodies. And He says, stop what you're doing Stop trying to obey the law. I'll do it for you. Because I'm the only one that has done it and will continue to do it perfectly. Just let me live your life for you. Stop. <laughs> okay? Are you with me? So now, let's back up to where we were Genesis chapter 1. Let me take you there. No coincidences. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning one day. 
light was created the very first day. Now, when was the sun created? Hmm. Anybody know when the sun was created? Jump down a few verses, verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the fourth day. When was the sun created? The fourth day. The sun was created on the fourth. Let's, let's go back to that menorah for a second. How many days were there in creation? God rested on the seventh day. God rested on the seventh day. Hmm, look at this menorah. Hmm. When was the sun created? One, two, three, four. No coincidences. I get it. Rusty, you're stretching this. You're stretching this. Let me read to you. This is crazy. This is from Josephus. Josephus was an unredeemed Jew. He was a historian. He, he wrote down all the Jewish history. He says, Over against the table near the southern wall was a set of a candlestick of cast gold, hollow within, being of the weight of 100 pounds. 100 pounds. It was made with its knops and lilies and pomegranates and bowls, which ornaments amounted to 70 in all, by which means the shaft elevated itself on high from a single base and spread itself into as many branches as there are planets. In those days, the only planets that were recognized were those that were viewable by sight. How many planets do we recognize today? Huh? Nine? Watch this. As many branches as there are planets, they recognized seven planets. We recognize nine today, including the sun among them. It terminated in seven heads in one row, all standing parallel to one another. And these branches carried seven lamps, one by one, in imitation of the number of the planets. These lamps looked to the east and to the south, the candlestick being situate obliquely. Josephus, who wrote this, doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He's an unredeemed Jew. Realized that the sun located at the center of our solar system, was providing light for the planets that were visibly available to them at that time. That would be Mercury, Venus, Earth, or the moon, depending on which one he counted, 
Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. It seems, based upon what I just read right here, is that Josephus concluded that the sun served as the middle lamp. Coincidence. If this is so, the sun that Josephus wrote about right here is a picture of the sun who is the light of the world. Hmm. Yeah. The sun that, G- that Josephus failed to recognize is my Savior. It's no coincidence that Josephus saw that the sun actually represents the sun. The S-U-N represents the S-O-N. Now, I get it. You're going, that's kind of a stretch. Well, let's take it another step. Have you ever heard of the legend of Azazel? It's in your Bible. Don't read your Bibles? Just kidding. It is in the Bible, though. Uh, let me explain to you what happened. There, in the Old Covenant that we talked about earlier in the temple, there was this Day of Atonement that happened every year. And the Day of Atonement was this, is that a sacrificial lamb, goat, was sacrificed and blood was poured out. They all brought their different, the different families brought their sacrifices. Even Jesus would come with his mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, and they would bring a sacrificial animal every year during the Passover, and they would have this Day of Atonement. And the high priest would actually go into, the only person that could go into the Holy of Holies, the back of the temple that Solomon had built, built was the high priest. And he would go in there twice. The first time he would go in there and he would take the blood from a bull. And this bull's blood would actually be, listen to this, an atonement for the high priest's sin. Just the high priest. Blood of the bull. And atonement covered his sin. And then they would take two goats. They would take two goats and they would cast lots, which basically means they gambled on the goat's life. And the goat that lost would become the sacrifice. And they would slit the goat's throat And the high priest would take the blood back there in the Holy of Holies and he would offer this blood sacrifice for the rest of the Jewish people. And guess what? Their sins were covered for the year. Stinks for them because as soon as they walk out of there, they're probably going to sin again. And it all starts over. They start stockpiling their sins for another year. As soon as they walk away from Jerusalem, they repeat the process. This happened in the Old Covenant over and over and over again, but there was that day of atonement. Watch this. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6, it says this, With these things prepared like this, the priests enter the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself 
and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. (laughs) What sins were covered? All the sins that they did, plus even the sins they didn't even understood that they did. That every sin was covered. Now, I've sat here and said, atonement, atonement, it means covering. What is the difference between atonement and forgiveness? Hmm. This could be a revelation to some of you in this room this morning. Atonement means covered. Forgiveness means removed, taken away. Watch, watch, watch. All those sins on the Day of Atonement, all throughout the years of the Old Covenant, they were only covered. They were never removed. They were never taken away. They were still there. They were still in existence. When did all those sins of the Old Covenant get removed and taken away? When Jesus died on the cross. When the Messiah, the Savior, came and His blood was poured out on the cross, now all of a sudden, this Day of Atonement, all those sins that were covered had been removed. Where did they go? I have no idea where they went. They're gone. Here's the good news for you that are sitting in this room. You're sitting in the New Covenant. You're sitting on the other side of the cross. There is no atonement. Well, there is atonement for your sins. They're covered. But not only that, but they're forgiven. They're removed. They're gone. (laughs) Thank you. Look. Jesus died on the cross 30 A.D. and He dealt with every sin. He dealt with every sin except for that of unbelief. He dealt with every sin all the way back from Adam all the way to the end. He's not getting up on the cross a second time. So what that means for you in this room right here is that Jesus took care of your sins 2,000 years ago before you were even born. He dealt with your sin. He dealt with all your junk that you've already done, that you're doing, and that you're going to do. It's forgiven. (laughs) That's incredible news, you guys. Literally, if you can walk this earth knowing that you are a forgiven person, that everything that you've done, doing, or going to do has been dealt with and forgiven, it causes you to walk here on earth differently. You sit here and go, well, that, that just sounds like you can do whatever you want. Well, yeah, you can. <laughs> yeah, you can, but if you know exactly that this is not a coincidence and you know what my father did, I promise you, I promise you, if the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, you won't want to sin. Because you're a new creation. He's made you holy. He's redeemed you. He's forgiven you. He's perfected you, as it says in Hebrews. You won't want to sin. Now, <laughs> watch this. In Leviticus chapter 16, verse 8, it says, After Aaron cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for an uninhabitable place. If you have a little note in your Bible, if you actually turn to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 8 and 10 in your Bibles, there's probably a little note there. My translation says, uninhabitable place. 
Some of your translations, New American Standard, I believe NIV will say scapegoat. Some of your translations, Holman Christian, some of the others will, play, will say Azazel, the legend of Azazel. What it's talking about here is it's talking about this second goat. There were two goats, one was sacrificed and the other became the scapegoat. Have you ever heard that terminology before? It comes from Scripture. There is a scapegoat. Watch this. In my notes, it actually says, in my Bible, it says, perhaps a term that means for the goat that departs, for removal, for a rough, difficult place, or for a goat demon. It says, let me back up. It says, uh, Aaron cast lots for two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the uninhabitable place. He is to present the goat chosen by lot for the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot for an uninhabitable place is to be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with it by sending it into the wilderness for an an uninhabitable place. Now watch this. I'm going to read to you from the Talmud. This is what exactly what happened based upon Jewish background. Look, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. From the Talmud. If you assume it was Rabbi Johanan ben Zakkai who made the rule, was there in the days of Rabbi Johanan Zakkai a thread of scarlet which turned white? Has it not been taught by Rabbi Johan and Zechariah, lived together 120 years. For 40 years he was in business, 40 years he studied, and 40 years he taught. And it has further been taught for 40 years before the destruction of the temple. Destruction of the temple was 70 AD, 40 years before that would be 38 AD, the same year that Jesus was crucified, yet they have nothing to do with Jesus. It says... For 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the thread of the scarlet never turned white, but it remained red. I know that doesn't make sense to you. They tied a red ribbon, one, to a rock. They tore it in two. They tied a red ribbon to a rock, and then they tied the other red ribbon to the horns of the goat, the scapegoat. It says, during the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple, The lot for the Lord did not come up in the right hand, nor did the crimson-colored strap become white. Now I read to you from the Jewish Encyclopedia. Just hang with me. It says, On the Day of Atonement, a man was selected, preferably a priest, to take the goat to the precipice in the wilderness. And he was accompanied part of the way by the most eminent men of Jerusalem. Ten booths had been constructed at intervals along the road leading from Jerusalem to the steep mountain. At each one of these, the men leading the goat was formally offered food and drink, which he, however, refused. When he reached the tenth booth, those who accompanied him proceeded no further, but watched the ceremony from a distance. When he came to the precipice, he divided the scarlet thread into two parts, one which he tied to the rock and the other to the goat's horns and then push the goat down. Push the goat down. Push the goat down the cliff. 
The cliff was so high and rugged that before the goat had traversed half the distance to the plain below, its limbs were utterly shattered. Men were stationed at intervals along the way, and as soon as the goat was thrown down the precipice, they signaled to one another by means of kerchiefs or flags until the information reached the high priest, whereat he proceeded with the other parts of the ritual. Watch this. The scarlet thread was a symbolic reference to Isaiah 118. And the Talmud tells us that during the 40 years that Simon the Just was high priest, the thread actually turned white as soon as the goat was thrown over the precipice. This thread, this crimson thread, turned white at the Day of Atonement. It was the scapegoat. He took all their sins and it went over the cliff. And the scarlet thread went from crimson to white. It says a sign that the sins of the people were forgiven. That's not right. That's not right. They weren't forgiven. They weren't forgiven until Jesus' blood was poured out. It says in later time, the change to white was not invariable. A proof of the people's moral and spiritual deterioration that was gradually on the increase until, oh, here it comes, until 40 years before the destruction of the second temple when the change of the color was no longer observed. (laughs) Wait. So, 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the temple doors, which were heavy as could be, began to just open mysteriously. The westernmost candle went out and was never lit again. The scarlet thread that was crimson and turned white never turned white again. All coincidence? Absolutely not. Watch, Hebrews 10:12. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. That sacrificial system that we explained about in the Old Covenant had been in effect for many, 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 many years. And now, because of what Jesus did, what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. That Old Covenant became, watch this, obsolete. Like it's not, it's not valid anymore. The old covenant has been replaced by the new covenant. Are you, are you with me? You realize what this verse is saying right here. This man offering one sacrifice for sins forever, never having to deal with sin again, never having to do anything else. He dealt with it one time. Watch. He sat down at the right hand of God. That's a big deal. When you sit down, when the high priest actually sat down, his work was done. Because in the Day of Atonement, those priests never sat down. They kept moving and moving and shifting the blood and 
pouring out the different sacrifices and everything else, and it's just, just they never sat down. And it says Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. You know where my Messiah, my Savior is right now? He's at the right hand of God right now. And guess what he's doing? He's testifying to his Father about me. And about you. That's what he's doing. Rusty believes that I'm your child, God. And that I died on the cross for all of his sins. And therefore, God, he's one of our children. He's a child of God. We made him perfect. We made him holy. He's standing down there right now on earth going through this journey trying to figure it out. Trying to figure it out. But he's redeemed. What Jesus' blood was able to do was far greater than the blood of the bulls and the goats. What they could not do. That crimson thread that turned white never changed again after 30 AD because the only blood that mattered, the only covenant that mattered was that of Jesus Christ. It all changed after 30 AD. Lord, uh, I trust that as we continue to unpack your word and we really... Uh, walk every day here on earth that we're able to see how much you really are at work in our lives. I trust you that you will unpack and reveal to us today the incredible works that you do each and every day. And I thank you, thank you, thank you for forgiveness, the forgiveness of sin that you've literally made us whole. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.